Welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. On this week's episode, I sat down with Natalia Ohalski, a pelvic health physical therapist who is super passionate about what she does. Natalia is a fellow University of Scranton alumni and for the last two years has treated men, women, and children with a variety of pelvic floor dysfunctions. Natalia loves to educate others about why we should care about our pelvic health, how it impacts exercise and performance, and why it's important to spread awareness that pelvic floor and sexual dysfunctions should not be brushed under the rug. I had a blast with this one and learned a ton. So get comfy, find a place to jot down some notes, and enjoy my conversation with Natalia. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. Today, I am joined by Natalia. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Julie. I'm super excited. Awesome. Before we get into our topic today, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Natalia. I went to the University of Scranton for undergrad and for DPT school. I have been a physical therapist for almost two years at this point. Um, I went right into the specialty of pelvic floor when I graduated PT school. It's totally cool. We love a, we love a good dog bark. Um, yeah, so I went right into the specialty of pelvic floor when I graduated. Um, and this is something that I always knew I wanted to do. Um, and when I was in school, I was able to complete two pelvic health clinical rotations, which was awesome. So I've worked in private practice and I'm transitioning to a hospital-based um, system for pelvic floor, which I'm super excited about. Um, back in November, I completed my pelvic rehab practitioner certification through the Herman and Wallace Institute, um, which recognizes expertise in pelvic health after completing at least 2000 hours of direct patient care. I'm extremely passionate about what I do and advocating for patients with conditions that some people might see as taboo um, and educating men, women, and children on how to have a healthy pelvic floor. Awesome. That's super cool. I think it's awesome that you kind of knew while you were in school that this was an interest of yours, a passion of yours, and that you went after it because in school we get very little pelvic health education, you know, um, at Scranton, we were lucky to get a few weeks of it. I know some people get nothing. So that's great that you had those opportunities with clinicals. And to get started, I want you to just introduce a little bit about like what the pelvic floor is for a lot of us who don't have this background knowledge. It's like, what is that? What is the pelvic floor? So can you just give a brief introduction to what the pelvic floor refers to and what purpose it serves? Yeah, absolutely. So the pelvic floor are a group of muscles that run from your tailbone to your pubic bone and side to side, and they stretch across like a hammock. Um, the pelvic floor works directly with your um, abdominal muscles and your diaphragm or your breathing muscle to provide support and stability. We always say there's the five S's of the role of the pelvic floor. So it's support, stability. It helps with posture and breathing. It plays a role in sexual function and sexual health. Um, it has sphincteric capabilities to mean bowel and bladder continence. And I think, you know, later we'll get into, you know, the relationship that the pelvic floor has specifically with the core and 
the pelvic floor is a core muscle, which is, I think, often very overlooked by a lot of people and a lot of practitioners as well. Yeah, definitely. That's something that I learned about actually as a patient myself of physical therapy. Mm-hmm. About two years ago, I was training for the Scranton Half Marathon and I was yeah. having some back pain. Um, I went to a great PT in Scranton, John Salva, and oh. I was surprised when I was going for back pain, he actually was having me do like pelvic floor contractions and, you know, doing Kegels. And I was like, how is this relevant? And we started talking a little bit about how the pelvic floor muscles relate to creating that, you know, spinal stability. So can you just paint that picture of, you mentioned a few muscles, the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, the abdominals, like to the best of your ability without um, a visual, can you just explain how all of those muscles work together and how they might lead to orthopedic pain, like back pain or hip pain? Yeah. So this is huge. Um, So specific muscles of your core And the pelvic floor are going to work together like a sump pump, which is one of those S's that we talked about before. Um, And they're going to work in synergy to modulate intrathoracic pressure, um, intra-abdominal pressure. So we have your pelvic floor muscles. If we're thinking of like a soda can or like a water bottle. So the bottom of that can would be your pelvic floor. Um, the front would be your transverse abdominis, the back would be your multifidus muscles, and the top would be your diaphragm. Um, so these muscles, if they're not working together, um, especially during exercise, when pressure is increasing, um, we can get a loss of tissue integrity, which can lead to hernias, prolapse, varicosities, just general orthopedic injuries. Um, and a dysfunction in this synergistic relationship can occur immediately, or it can happen slowly over time. So if we're specifically speaking about, um, you know, the relationship of the pelvic floor and the core muscles, um, as we inhale, the diaphragm is going to drop and the pelvic floor should eccentrically lengthen and relax. So usually I'll have my patients sit on, you know, a a table or a chair and I'll have them find their pelvic floor muscles by finding their sit bones and then moving their hands a little bit more medial. And I'll have them take a big breath in and see if they can feel their pelvic floor muscles kind of sinking into their fingertips. Um, And then during an exhale, the diaphragm is going to rise and the pelvic floor should follow with a concentric contraction. So this, that sump pump action is going to maintain neutral abdominal pressure. Um, So we also want to look at load transfer prior to exercise as well, which is super important. So a single leg stance, a straight leg raise, Um, the pelvic girdle is going to support the abdomen and the organs of the lower pelvis. So how well can you activate the core and your pelvic floor together to provide a dynamic link between the pelvic floor and the abdominal muscles for optimal stability during um, exercise. So, you know, what if someone has a tight pelvic floor or um, a weak pelvic floor that's not allowed to, you know, move as um, freely, or they have a history of abdominal surgeries with um, a lot of scar tissue and fascial and soft tissue restrictions that doesn't allow the abdomen to expand during breathing um, or breathing difficulties like COPD or allergies that causes, you know, a lot of coughing and pressure down in the abdomen. That's going to play a huge role in your core stability, um, not only during exercise, but, you know, throughout your ADLs and your lifestyle. 
Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. So much information there. And one thing that I'm picturing that I find fascinating is that when we talk about the core muscles, like most people, when you think of a strong core, you picture an eight pack, six pack rectus abdominis, you know? And one thing that I've learned through my brief pelvic floor education, but also what you just mentioned is true core strength and stability and proper function is coming from those deep muscles that we can't even really see. Right. So, you know, somebody who has a really strong and cut rectus abdominis muscle may in fact have like a weak core stability system, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I find when I'm teaching patients, you know, diaphragmatic breathing or how to engage their transverse abdominis, a lot of people find it very difficult to find those deep muscles because it's not something that we're ever educated on. Um, you know, when we're going to the gym or, you know, I'm having like a strong body. Yeah, 100%. And you walked us through that process of kind of assessing the pelvic floor muscles and that eccentric drop when you take a breath. Can you mention what are some ways to kind of assess like how the diaphragm is working and how the transverse abdominis? Is there also like a quick way that we can look at that? Yeah. So when I have a patient come in for the first time, Um, when I'm talking to them or I have them on the table and I'm assessing different, you know, orthopedic, um, assessments, I'll kind of look at their breathing naturally without saying anything. Is their abdomen expanding? What does the chest movement look like? Is their rib cage expanding laterally? And then I'll explain it to them as, you know, breathing should be a 360 degree motion. So if you imagine an umbrella sitting underneath your rib cage, you want, um, you know, when you're inhaling, you want this anterior posterior motion as well as a lateral expansion of your rib cage as well. Um, so if I'm seeing any movements or motions that are lacking, I'm going to assess, you know, the thoracic spine, um, the rib cage, and then I'll look at um, their transverse abdominis. I'll do, you know, a, a core assessment, assessing their strength, and then teaching them specifically how to find the transverse abdominis and how to activate that, um, those deep core muscles. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I mean, breathing, we know that's what the diaphragm's function is, but I like how you mentioned that it should be in multiple directions. Like when I first started getting into deep breathing, more from like a meditation perspective, I was really focusing on pushing my stomach out, but I've learned again, pretty recently as I've become interested in this stuff, that it's not that like forced anterior excursion, it's breathing laterally and not necessarily forcing your stomach to push out as much as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll usually have patients put one hand on their, you know, lower stomach, one hand on their chest. And without even saying anything first, I'll see which hand is moving more because oftentimes we find that we are all chest breathers. We breathe very shallow. Um, We don't use our diaphragm. And if we're not using our diaphragm, it's a muscle. So it's going to get shortened. It's going to get dysfunctions in of itself. So um, after I kind of visually show them what's going on, I can do over pressure on their rib cage so that they can feel that they're supposed to move, you know, out laterally. Um, you can put a weight on somebody's abdomen to help them with that anterior posterior motion. So it's really cool just breaking down the basics of breathing. Cause a lot of people don't think about how important that is and what an integral role that plays in your body. 
Yeah. It's so underrated. And especially in the world of fitness and weightlifting and, you know, moving your body with heavy loads, breathing has to be in tune to create that rigid spine to prevent injuries and ultimately to improve performance. So I'm definitely with you on that. And then in terms of the transverse abdominis, Mm -hmm. I've heard about different, you know, techniques, so to speak, or exercises that work the TA. What is your go-to way of assessing like TA activation or function? Yeah. So usually I have the patient in a hook lying position first, um, and I'll find their ACEs. I'll come a little bit more medial. And then I'll tell them to take a big breath in. And when they're exhaling to pretend like they're buttoning a really tight pair of jeans. So they're kind of bringing their belly button away from um, their jeans down to their spine. Um, Sometimes I'll say, pretend like your hip bones are bookends and you're trying to close those bookends or bring them closer together. Um, And I find that those two cues work really, really well for patients. And then, you know, we want to transition them into different positions. It's one thing if they can do it laying down in a supine position, but can they do it um, seated? Can they do it in a quadruped position? Can they now have that carryover from a sit to stand transfer and then ultimately to running or exercise or whatever, you know, daily task it might be? Yeah, that's a really great point. And even something that I'm seeing right now in the outpatient setting that I think about a lot is when we're having patients do these exercises on the table, Mm -hmm. once they get to the point that they're good at them, it's not necessarily going to carry over into day to day unless we're also performing them in a functional activity. Right. And then I want to ask you, like when I first learned about the transverse abdominis, Mm -hmm. I feel like the go-to exercise is a posterior pelvic tilt. But I've since learned that the TA isn't really a muscle that tilts the pelvis, right? Like, is that, what's your opinion on that? No, I completely agree. Um, It should really just be that motion of kind of tightening the abdominal cavity and not really um, tilting your pelvis at all. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you have a little bit of a picture of how all of those muscles work. Um, in terms of checking for your TA, if you find those bony prominences on the front of you, that's your ASIS, your ASIS, go just inside of that and take a deep breath and see if you can feel, you know, those muscles squeezing a little bit. I I really like those cues that you give Nat, and I'm definitely going to use those with my patients as well and see what we can do. And Um, sometimes it's hard to integrate the breathing with, um, the activation. So I always tell my patients to go slow um, if it takes a couple sessions just to get that integration of the breathing with the activation in a hook line position, that's totally fine. Cause I'd rather them learn it right. than do the exercises messy down the line. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that too, because like we talked about these exercises, breathing and squeezing the pelvic floor, the TA, they seem so basic that when a patient tries them for the first time, it's frustrating when you don't get it right. And you're like, why can't I do this? It seems so easy. I'm speaking from experience. The first time that I was told to properly activate my TA, I'm like, why isn't it doing it? You know? So remind yourself that if you're somebody who's working on this, it's just like the first time you try to use any muscle in your body. The first time you put a barbell on your back and squat, it's probably not going to look pretty. It's going to take practice. So same thought process with this, right? Have patience with yourself and understand that, you know, taking the time to make sure you do it right is going to give you the best outcome in the long run. Yeah. And I think extra patience uh, with this is needed because 
you can't see these muscles. So it's really hard to activate them. Like for me, I'm such a visual learner. So I'll have my pelvic models out or whatever visual tools I use to explain to my patients, but um, it's, you know, it's hard to demonstrate. So if you're someone that's in pelvic PT or you're a PT that's, you know, trying to explain these techniques to a patient, definitely be gentle with yourself, be patient because, um, you know, these exercises can be a little bit difficult at first. Yeah, definitely. And obviously you're working with the pelvic health specialty specifically, and I want to get in a little bit more to like what kinds of diagnoses you see, but talking about all these muscles, you and I both know that they're very important for any human being. So would you, what advice would you give an outpatient orthopedic physical therapist in terms of when to integrate these kinds of things? Should we be doing these TA breathing techniques with any of the patients that we see in that setting? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a a good orthopedic therapist is going to screen for any bowel bladder or sexual health dysfunctions in the body. And then if those things do arise, um, referring out to a pelvic health specialist is definitely going to be, um, you know, most effective for that patient, but, um, integrating, you know, transverse abdominis and core strengthening and breathing is going to be optimal for any patient, no matter what they're coming in for, even if it's, you know, someone coming in for knee pain or something like that, you know, the, the core is the center of everything. So that's going to play a huge role in really any um, condition that an orthopedic therapist is going to see. Yeah. Awesome. I love to hear you say that because I'm really into this stuff and I hope that I can continue, you know, using it with my patients and clients. So let's talk a little bit specifically about what you do as a pelvic health specialist. What are the kinds of common diagnoses and dysfunctions that you treat in a pelvic health physical therapy clinic? Yeah. So, um, I've seen a lot, but probably the most common would be the postpartum population. So issues with incontinence, um, prolapse, pain with intercourse after vaginal delivery, um, diastasis recti, which is the abdominal separation, um, any issues with C-section scars, um, and then would be probably chronic pelvic pain, which is my favorite thing to treat. Um, so anything from like vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, vaginismus, dyspruenia, um, endometriosis is a huge one. Um, chronic UTIs, chronic prostatitis, um, chronic abdominal pain, erectile dysfunction. Um, and then I've seen a lot of males post prostatectomy. Um, and then prenatal patients, that's also very, very important, um, chronic constipation, fecal incontinence. And then I've also seen a handful of pediatric patients, typically with, um, nocturnal enuresis, which is bedwetting. Okay. Wow. That is like a lot of different things. So you are definitely very well-versed. Um, now in terms of those different diagnoses, so are you typically seeing patients like they're given this diagnosis by an OBGYN and then they get referred to you? Um, So it depends. Typically, no. (laughs) Um, A lot of times a patient will go see their doctor. And um, in my experience, there's very few doctors who will just refer out to pelvic PT. So it's oftentimes these patients are kind of, they've 
gone through years of pain and dysfunction and so many doctors and they finally like Googled pelvic PT and came upon it. And that's a really cool thing about PT now um, we're direct access. So you don't need a script um, to come see us, but typically they're coming on their own. Um, Yeah. Which is, you know, that's definitely, it's surprising and kind of unfortunate that a lot of physicians aren't directly seeing like, that um the importance of sending a patient to us to pts who can handle that but like you said also super great when you do get that patient who took it upon themselves to you know get themselves into the clinic if they're having those issues and you know speaking on the pregnant and postpartum population i know one thing that i've heard a lot about just being somebody involved in fitness going to a lot of group exercise classes and things you'll always hear you know, women in the background, just kind of making jokes about like, Oh, I, you know, I can't do the jumping jacks because I'm going to leak and Mm -hmm. kind of talking about these things as if it's normal. And I know they're very common. So women may chalk it up to being normal, but can you just speak a little bit about more so incontinence? Cause I know that's very prevalent in the fitness population. Like Mm -hmm. what is the reason why women experience that? And is it something that can be fixed even years after giving birth? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll see women anywhere between like six weeks postpartum and like 45 years postpartum. And it's, I mean, it might take a little bit longer um, to heal if you're coming years after postpartum, but it's definitely fixable. And like you said, it's a very common issue. So people kind of just, you know, brush it off their shoulders, but it's not normal. And you don't, you don't need to be leaking. You don't need to be wearing a pad or anything like that during exercise. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times women are told that this is normal, but it's not. And the pelvic floor is a muscle just like anywhere else in the body. So it has the ability to heal. So oftentimes a lot of people are thinking, oh, I have incontinence because my pelvic floor is really weak. Um, but you can also have incontinence if your pelvic floor is really tight. So you need, um, you need range of motion for a muscle to be able to function properly, but if your muscles are really tight, they're not going to have that length and that range of motion to be able to contract, um, and relax when they should. So a lot of times I'll find that women are actually leaking because their pelvic floor is really tight. Um, but in the past they've been told by other healthcare providers to go home and just do Kegels. It'll fix the incontinence. They do Kegels, things get a million times worse. Um, and then they're surprised when they come to me and I'm like, no, stop doing, you know, any type of contraction we need length before we can strengthen. So if we're trying to strengthen a muscle that's already tight, it's just going to lead to more dysfunction down the line. Yeah, that's really interesting and difficult to assess yourself, difficult to like have that understanding. You know, if we're talking about a a bigger skeletal muscle that we can see easier, like let's say the biceps, if your biceps is really tight, you'll know that versus if it's really weak, you'll know that. But with the pelvic floor, you kind of need to seek these external sources to really figure that out. So if you have somebody come into your clinic who's experiencing this, can you just briefly walk through the process of how you determine whether we have that hypotonicity versus hypertonicity? Yeah. So first I'm going to do a full orthopedic screen. So I'm looking at their thoracic spine, their lumbar spine, 
their hips, their breathing, their posture. If indicated, I'm going to look at, you know, knees, ankles, feet, all the way up to the cervical spine, the TMJ. Um, and then, you know, I'll explain to them the anatomy of the pelvic floor and that there's a lot of really good information that we can get through an internal assessment. This is always, always, always up to the patient to do, to consent to an internal examination. And I always say, just because you consent to it, this session does not mean that we have to continue with it, you know, sessions down the line. So typically I'm going to start externally. I'm going to you know, look and see if they're able to contract and relax or do a pelvic floor contraction or a Kegel without me giving any cues. Are they going in the right direction? Is there a lift? Is there, you know, a relaxation phase? And then I'm going to palpate the first layer of the pelvic floor externally. So here I'm looking for, you know, are they having any pain with palpation? Do I feel any tenderness or trigger points? Um, and if, if there is pain or, you know, trigger points, then typically there's going to be some hypertonicity in that pelvic floor. Um, and then as long as they consent to an internal examination, I'll basically do the same thing to the um, first, second, and third layers of the pelvic floor internally, um, which is one digit inserted vaginally. Um, I'm going to ask them to do that same pelvic floor contraction, and I'm going to feel, is there movement? What is their strength like? Is there a drop in the pelvic floor? I'm going to have them do that diaphragmatic breathing while I'm assessing the pelvic floor internally to see if there's that general movement of, you know, that concentric contraction and eccentric lengthening of the pelvic floor. Um, and then, you know, just like any other palpation in the body, you're going to use bony landmarks in the pelvis to find certain muscles, um, and then continue your assessment from there. I could talk about this forever, but I know, no, it's <laughs> awesome. It's, it's so, it's so interesting. And to a lot of people, I mean, myself included being a young clinician, like mm -hmm. you think about involving the pelvic floor, doing these internal exams and you're like, that's not PT, but it totally is. Like you mentioned, the, the pelvic floor is just another set of skeletal muscles. And yeah. it's so crucial to our overall function, our performance as humans, especially in the fitness space. So it's really great that you're, you know, spreading this message and this awareness around it. Now, yeah. one thing that's coming to mind when you talk about this, when we learned about this in, in school, and I'll give a shout out to um, Dr. Lori Walton, who taught us pelvic floor. She did a great job. but we, one thing that a lot that came up a lot with our class, we were doing, you know, external palpation and exam, but yeah. when we were assessing the Kegel, can you do a pelvic floor contraction? Many of us were like squeezing and we're like, okay, yeah, I feel it. Like that it feels really strong. Yeah. But in reality, a lot of us were really tightening the glutes or the adductors or yep. something like that, and not actually the pelvic floor. So can you just talk a little bit about like how somebody could understand if they're compensating with the pelvic floor and maybe why that might happen? Yeah. So, I mean, typically if someone's compensating with the glutes or the adductors, they're using overflow, um, you know, to gather strength for the pelvic floor, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If somebody's very, very weak, um, I'll allow them to use um, their glutes and their adductors at first until they can feel that isolation of the pelvic floor. Um, but can you repeat your question again? I got sidetracked. Yeah, no, no, no. That was, I mean, that was kind of the point is like, my question is, is it okay if we notice that that's happening or is there a way to 
kind of train your pelvic floor to activate by itself without recruiting those other muscles like the adductors and the glutes to right. come into I mean, it. ultimately you want, you want to isolate the pelvic floor. You want to teach your patient how to do those isolated contractions, which is where that internal assessment can really come in handy. Cause you can do, um, like tapping manual therapy to get those muscles to contract. You can do, um, e-stim or biofeedback internally. You can also do it externally. It's just more accurate internally. Um, And then, you know, if somebody's really tight, you're not going to have them doing those contractions with their glutes and their adductors right off the bat until you do certain manual techniques to lengthen the pelvic floor. Um, But certainly if someone's coming in with like a one or a two out of five strength um, and you've ruled out any hypertonicity, then if they need to start, you know, with bridges or, you know, bridges with an adductor squeeze to get that overflow to the pelvic floor, then that's certainly okay. I've done that um, quite a few times with patients. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this question is probably going to be a little bit too general because I know every patient's individualized, but if -hmm. you do have a patient who has weakness and you're looking to recruit the pelvic floor better and make it stronger, Mm -hmm. what kinds of like dosing are you using for like, is this part of a home exercise program that they're doing these Kegels? Like how often should a person be doing these exercises? Yeah. So, um, the pelvic floor is made up of slow twitch and fast twitch muscles. So it's primarily slow twitch muscles. So I will give them, um, Kegels that they're going to be holding for. And again, it depends. It's not very black and white, you know, in my assessment, if they can only hold it for, hold the contraction for three seconds. Maybe that week I'll send them home and say, do 30 Kegels a day. So you can split it up 10 times, uh, 10 Kegels, three times a day and try to hold it for five seconds. And you're doing your breathing with it. So you're going to be doing that long exhale with it as well. Um, and I'll tell them to do it, you know, first thing in the morning, when they wake up, you can do it in the car. You can try to do it when you're walking or during an activity again, so that there's carryover between different, um, activities. And then I'm also going to have them do quick flicks. We call it, which is fast contractions of the pelvic floor. Um, so I'll have them do around 20 to 30 of those per day as well. And then depending how they do at the next session, I would increase how long they're holding that pelvic contraction for at home. Um, and ultimately we would want to go up to like a 30 second hold. Okay. Wow. Interesting. That definitely sounds like it would be difficult for me. Like thinking about the times that I've done some pelvic floor contraction and stuff. Um, so that's great. And in terms of breathing, like we talked about that, you want to work the diaphragm and the pelvic floor together. Can you just walk me through like when you're taking an inhale versus an exhale with the pelvic floor contraction and relaxation, how do you like time that together? Yeah. So I'll say, take a big breath in. You should feel that pelvic floor drop down. So we're thinking of that sump pump motion. So your pelvic floor and your diaphragm are always going to follow each other. And then as you're exhaling, I usually tell my patients, like, imagine there's a zipper starting at your pubic bone. And as you're exhaling, that zipper is lifting up. So you're bringing your pelvic floor up and in your transverse abdominis down, and then your diaphragm is coming up as well. Okay. And I'm sitting here like trying to do it. I definitely have to practice that, but great, good information. Cause timing that getting that coordination is probably the most difficult part and super like important. I would assume when applying it to exercise, 
Um, again, thinking more from a fitness standpoint, when you're doing loaded exercises, any yeah. good coach will talk about breathing and when you should be inhaling versus when you should be exhaling. But I could see the value in going a, one step further and talking about, okay, how should we time the pelvic floor contraction mm-hmm. with that same squat or deadlift or whatever it is that right. we're doing. Yeah. So if you're doing a squat and I'll typically start with like a basic sit to stand transfer before adding weights or anything more difficult, just so they understand the basics. Um, I'll have them exhale as they're coming up from the squat. So as you're loading everything, you want to contract the pelvic floor. You want to exhale. Um, you want to avoid any breath holding. That's going to increase that abdominal pressure. If we're thinking of that soda can visual again, anything that's going to put a lot of pressure down on the pelvic floor. So you want to make sure that you're exhaling as you're going. Um, I, I have this analogy that I say to my patients and they think it's pretty funny. I usually say blow as you go, as you're doing the exercise, you want to be blowing out and exhaling. And you know, anytime you're exhaling, you're doing a pelvic floor contraction. Perfect. Yeah. That's an easy way to remember. I love that. Now we talked a lot about the postpartum women and how that is the primary, you know, population that you're going to treat. Do you also work with women, even men who well, obviously men have not had a baby, but we'll stick specifically with women. <laughs> like can women who have not given birth also experience problems with the pelvic floor and do you work with them as well? Absolutely. So um, my youngest patient was four years old and my oldest patient was like 94. Wow. So, so really pelvic health is across the lifespan. Um, but yeah, I've seen, you know, a lot of women that are in their twenties with chronic, chronic UTIs. I put that in quotes because they, you know, continually go to the doctor, they get tested for a UTI and, you know, maybe it comes back positive, but when they culture it, it's coming back negative consistently. So, um, there's no, there's no UTI there, but Um, that spastic hypertonic pelvic floor can mimic UTI symptoms. So when you have a pelvic spasm, you can get, you know, that hesitancy when you're going to the bathroom, burning with urination, um, you know, pain with sitting, just overall discomfort, abdominal pain that really mimics that, um, that medical diagnosis, but it might be a more musculoskeletal dysfunction. Um, I'll oftentimes see, you know, postmenopausal women that, you know, there's a lot of changes in your hormone levels um, when you go through menopause, and that's going to affect the vaginal mucosa, which can lead to, you know, weakness of the pelvic floor, um, pain with intercourse if there's, you know, not vaginal lubrication. Um, I'll see, you know, a lot of women that come in and intercourse is really uncomfortable or putting in a tampon is really uncomfortable or they're not able to. Um, And this is, this is huge for me because for so many years, people are, you know, not educated that these things should not be uncomfortable. You should have pain-free sex. You, you know, if putting a tampon in is a goal for you, that should not be uncomfortable. Um, and that's typically a musculoskeletal thing. There's a lot of tightness at the um, introitus or the the entrance to the vaginal opening and um, PT can help with that. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for explaining all those things. Cause like you said, there's probably so many women walking around with these problems mm-hmm. and either don't know who to talk to, don't understand that it's okay to talk about it and don't know that it can be fixed. So 
super cool. Definitely like so many points for pelvic floor PT, you know? And I really appreciate you having me on the podcast because any chance I have to educate people on the pelvic floor, um, I just get so excited about because, um, you know, a lot of times these conditions are seen as taboo where people are embarrassed to talk about it, or they've had, you know, really traumatic um, experiences at, you know, their doctor's office, which can prevent them from getting the care that they need. And um, I just want people to know that they're not alone. Pelvic PTs are very passionate about what we do. And our goal is to make you as comfortable as possible um, and be a part of your journey so that you can, you know, be pain-free and dysfunction-free. Yeah, that's really amazing. And something that I'm really passionate about in general is just treating the holistic person, right? Like when we have a human being in front of us, whether it's in a coaching scenario, a physical therapy scenario, or just like being a friend to somebody. You want to make yeah. sure that you're considering their physical well-being, mental well-being, and like sexual function and these day-to-day things are a big mm-hmm. part of that, you know. And I like to always go back to just like the fundamental things that make us human beings. Like you talked about breathing and its impact, not just on the pelvic floor, but breathing is an essential thing that literally drives our life. It drives everything that we do. And some of these other problems you're talking about, sexual function, like that shouldn't be a problem as humans that is meant to be part of who we are, you know? So yeah. And we take it for granted and it can be, you know, really life-changing for someone that has that taken away from them or, you know, the effect that it has on your, you know, intimate relationships. And I'll often encourage my patients to bring in their partner as long as they're comfortable with it. Um, Because there's a lot of manual techniques that your partner can do at home to help you, um, you know, through that discomfort and help you through pain-free intercourse and just to educate the partner that, you know, it's in, it's a musculoskeletal issue and not necessarily something with them as a a partner, which I see a lot. So, yeah, I could imagine that. Very interesting. Now, one of your recent Instagram posts really caught my eye that I want to talk about. It discussed bad habits that many of us have pertaining to the pelvic floor. Can you just talk a little bit about some common things that you see that we probably shouldn't be doing? Yeah. So that post was so fun to make. I bet. Um, And yeah, that it was specifically pertaining to bad bladder habits. So I'll talk about those a little bit. So, um, not drinking enough water, um, doing that just in case or jick peeing, we call it, um, stopping the flow of urine while you're voiding straining or pushing to pee, holding it in for too long or going on the first urge and drinking bladder irritants. And then my favorite hovering over the toilet. So you're probably like, then what is the right thing to do? Because (laughs) it seems wrong, but, um, so you should normally void one time every two to five hours, depending on, you know, your diet, you know, your lifestyle, et cetera. Um, so, and then generally, zero to one time per night, depending on your age, this can increase a little bit as your age increases. Um, and then you should be drinking half your body weight in ounces of water per day. And two thirds of that number should be strictly water. The other one third could be other liquids. So coffee, tea, whatever it may be, but then we get into bladder irritants. So 
anything that's caffeinated, citrusy, spicy, carbonated, alcohol, acidic. Those are all All the good stuff. All the good stuff. And don't get me wrong. I drink a lot of these things and I'm peeing like all the time and I'm like, oh, I should take my own advice. But um, yeah, so it's going to be different for every person. So I usually, if somebody's coming in with like a, you know, an overactive bladder or interstitial cystitis, I'll have them do a bladder log and a food log and, um, you know, have them be aware of their own triggers. You know, coffee might be a trigger for me, but it might not be a trigger for you. Um, and then the just in case peeing. So that's, I'm leaving the house. I'm going to be in the car for an hour. Let me pee just in case I don't have the urge to go, but I don't want to have to stop when I'm in the car. Um, so I always tell my patients that your bladder is like a naughty child. And when you do this, just in case peeing, or you pee on the first urge, your bladder capacity is actually going to shrink. And that threshold, when you get the urge is going to decrease. So you're going to have basically no bladder. If you continue these bad bladder habits. Um, and one thing that I think is really cool is your bladder can hold 400 to 600 mils of, um, fluid. So that's equivalent to between like a grande and a venti Starbucks cup. Um, and it takes two to four hours for your bladder to completely fill because it fills at 15 drops, um, per minute. So it really is a a decently long interval that we should um, be aware of. Um, And then stopping the flow of urine during voiding. This is just so bad. Never do this. Um, Sometimes people are told to do this to like practice their strength or practice that um, Kegel, but this just, it interferes with signals that are sent from the bladder to the brain. Um, And then again, going back to that, you know, naughty, naughty bladder um, analogy. Every time you sit on the toilet, your pelvic muscles are just going to contract and you're going to have a hard time going to the bathroom. Um, and then hovering is going to lead to a tight pelvic floor. So your bladder and your pelvic floor have an inverse relationship. So when one is contracting, the other is relaxing. So if you're hovering, your pelvic floor muscles are really tight. So that's going to send mixed signals to your bladder and it's going to have a really hard time contracting and emptying. Wow. The, all of those things are things that so many of us do. And I'm so glad you're bringing to light and explaining why we shouldn't be doing them. It makes a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And going off of that, besides avoiding these bad bladder habits, maybe trying to minimize the number of bladder irritants we're taking in each day, what are just some other general strategies, general things that you would tell somebody who is interested in maintaining a healthy pelvic floor or just promoting a healthy pelvic floor? Yeah. Like specifically pertaining to the bladder habits. Um, honestly pertaining to anything, like, are there any daily practices, exercises, just mm-hmm. things to keep in mind? Like if I am asking you, how do I keep my pelvic floor healthy? Cause honestly, I'm genuinely asking like, besides avoiding those bad things, what else should I be keeping in mind? Yeah. So I think having like a daily check-in with your pelvic floor to make sure that you're not clenching the same thing. If you're like, you know, shrugging your shoulders and you know, your shoulders are really tight and you're stressed and you have a forward head, um, the texting neck, you want to do the same thing with your pelvic floor. So doing that diaphragmatic breathing throughout the day to maintain that neutral sump pump and you're working on that range of motion of the pelvic floor. And then make sure you're hydrated, you're drinking enough water, um, you know, 
I can't go without coffee sometimes, but you can always dilute that caffeine and that acidity with a little bit of water, um, which can also help. Um, and then, you know, just stretching is going to be very helpful. And this is kind of hard to say, like, I mean, if, if you have, if you don't have any spasticity in the pelvic floor, then I would say by all means, you know, do, um, some Kegels throughout the day with your transverse abdominis contraction, um, and carry that over into exercise, into your transfers when you're getting in and out of the car and things like that. Um, and then just being mindful of, you know, sexual health and sexual function as well. If there's pain or something feels uncomfortable, go see a pelvic PT. Like that's not, that's not normal. Um, and things can change throughout the lifespan as well. You know, like one year you might be totally fine. And the next year there might be dysfunctions. And like I said earlier, they can occur um, overnight or they can occur over time. So um, there's help out there. So you don't have to do it alone. Yeah, that's great. Wow. I'm like super inspired to just like spread this message of taking care of your pelvic floor now, Nat. Now, one really general question to finish with for you, Mm -hmm. why should women care about and pay attention to pelvic health? Like, why do we care about all this stuff? So yeah. And this shouldn't just pertain to women. Okay. Okay. Why should every human being care about their pelvic floor? Right. So this is anybody with the pelvic floor. So men, women, children, Um, it plays such a vital role in our life, which we had talked about earlier in the podcast. And I think no one really thinks about it on a daily life. Like no one thinks about, um, incontinence or prolapse or eating in, you know, sexual function It helps with posture and breathing. And just, you know, the pelvic floor can go through so much when there's dysfunction, whether it, you know, be pregnancy and delivery or cancer or, any, you know, pelvic surgery or abdominal surgery. Um, And it deserves love just as much as any other part of the body, because it really, like without your pelvic floor, it would be really hard to function um, in your daily life. So that was beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Uh, Nat, one final question that all of my guests receive this podcast, the Goal Set Mindset podcast is centered around setting goals and achieving them with the principles of passion, perseverance, and performance. So tell me, what's a personal goal that you have right now and how are you working towards it? Yeah, so a personal goal for me is running. So this is something that I did a lot in undergrad and PT school and it brought me so much joy and then life got freaking busy and I just, I stopped um, for like two years. So I'm trying to get back into, um, running. I would love to do another half marathon or maybe something even a little bit longer. We'll see. Um, yeah, I always feel so empowered and happy after running. Um, and now it's more so a goal for my mental health rather than physical health, um, which is really exciting to have that perspective on it now. Um, And I have my little one and a half year old lab pit mix who we heard in the beginning of the podcast, who has a lot of pent up energy and she loves to go with me. So that makes it a lot more enjoyable to go with her. That's awesome. I love that goal for you. And now that spring is finally approaching, God willing, no more snow. I think it's actually snowing outside right now. Oh no. Um, That's an awesome time to, you know, get outside more, get into running. So that's really great. Yeah. Nat, this has been 
honestly, probably top three of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast. So thank you so much. I would love for you to just share. I would love for you to share where listeners can reach out to you. Tell us about your Instagram, where they can follow you and, um, you know, ask you questions if they have any. Yeah. So my Instagram is at Dr. Nat Pelvic DPT. Um, if you just Google my name or on Instagram, I'm sure it would come up. You can email me at um, Natalia Ohalski DPT at gmail.com. I love to answer questions. If somebody's thinking about pelvic health and isn't really sure, you know, the route to go, I think it's really important to have a mentor or find somebody that can kind of guide you through that. Um, and then you can also, if you're looking for a pelvic PT, if you go on the Herman and Wallace website, they have a directory that lists all pelvic PTs and you can search by, um, zip code. So that's a really easy way to find, um, a pelvic PT in your area. Perfect. Yeah, definitely give Nat a follow on Instagram, guys. If you're interested in learning more about the pelvic floor, like we mentioned, visually seeing how these things work is super helpful. And you've been coming up with some awesome creative ways of explaining things. I'm a big fan. So yeah, definitely. And again, just thank you so much for coming on. I think listeners are going to have learned a lot from this one and keep just keep us thinking about the pelvic floor and taking care of it. Thank you so, so much for bringing me on and, you know, taking the time to talk about the pelvic floor. I think it's so, so important. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. I hope you enjoyed all of the great things that Natalia has to share about the pelvic floor and why it deserves a place at the table within physical therapy and performance. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love if you shared it on Instagram and tagged Natalia and I so that we can thank you for the support and chat a little bit more about what you learned in this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.